Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As we are marching our way and getting, just getting started on this great epistle that the Lord has given us in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we have right outside in our parking lot, right on the corner there, a, a large siren that the city put up that is for uh, warning about tornadoes and that kind of thing. Uh, over the years, we've had it there almost 20 years probably, but over the years I can only remember a couple occasions when we actually had people here when that thing went off. And uh, when you do that, by the way, we, we probably should have a fire drill. Why would we do that now instead of having service, we have a drill. Everybody, some of you would say that would be good news. But uh, you're supposed to go out there in the hallway and get away from any windows and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, just be, you know, do, do the logical thing. But I've seen over the years when we've had that thing go off that some people do that, but other, some people jump in their cars and drive away, which is exactly what they tell you never to do. And some go out in the parking lot and look. They're looking for that tornado. I mean, it'd be fun to see. The rest, some are shivering in the corner somewhere, and others are looking for the tornado. Different reactions to those kinds of warnings. So if, if we have different reactions to physical dangers like that, uh, we also have different reactions to the warnings of Scripture that God gives us uh, in His Word. And there are many in the Word, but there's probably no place that more concentrated concerning these warnings of the book of Hebrews. It's known for its warning passages. And we'll be looking at some of those. We're going to look at the first one, actually, today. There's five major warning passages. If you picked up one, the notes in the hallway, and if you're newer to our church or, you, or haven't caught on, uh, we have notes out in the foyer that the ushers will give you, or you can pick up that uh, will go along with it. But in those, in those notes, I have the five warning passages laid out for you, which we also did a few weeks ago. But there's five major warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And these are some of the most controversial statements in all the Word of God. Uh, theologians and Bible teachers and God's people have, have debated for a long time uh, some of the specific meanings of those passages. And as I think about it, as I've studied Hebrews throughout my lifetime, and preached, this is my second round of preaching on it, I think the understanding of those passages, and actually the understanding of the whole book of Hebrews, really goes back to understanding who he's writing to. If you understand his audience, then, you, then all these other pieces can be put together. But until you understand his audience, you are, are, you're going to really struggle in interpreting some of these important passages. So let's start off today by looking at who he is writing to. And there's only three possibilities. And this is, by the way, this is the key. So uh, before you uh, dismiss this, this is the key to the book of Hebrews. If you want to understand God's word you want to understand the book of Hebrews, you must understand what I'm going to say in the next five minutes. We have to understand the audience. And there's three possibilities. Number one, he could be writing to unbelievers. He could be giving warnings to people who are not Christians about uh, missing out on salvation. And as a result of that, they'll be faced with eternal doom, eternal destruction in hell because they have rejected the word of God. The problem with that interpretation, which is taken by some, is that the author is addressing Christians. Throughout almost all the epistle, he talks about brothers and sisters in Christ. He talks about the church. Matter of fact, over chapter 6, verse 9 for a moment, at the conclusion of the most powerful warning passage in the book, uh, he comes to verse 9, and he says this. After talking about this warning, he says this, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you 
and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. So he is talking to his brothers, he says here, my beloved, and we're expecting better things of you who have salvation. And so uh, it's, it's very difficult to think he's talking to unbelievers here. And go back to our passage. And note, uh, and if you're a Bible student, if you study the Bible, you you observe what's there. And if you observe what is there, you find in verses two, uh, verse one and verse three, uh, that he's three different times he includes himself in this audience. Verse one says, "For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it." Verse eight, verse three: How shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. So he's including himself in the audience here. And so obviously he's a Christian, and so this passage of scripture is not addressed specifically to unbelievers, it's addressed to believers. So that leads us to the second possible uh, audience, and that is the believers. And that is the initial readers here are, are not the unsaved, but they are Christians, some of whom are wavering in their faith. They're in danger of turning their backs on God and seeing capable of rejecting the faith totally, but they're Christians nevertheless. These are often called, in some circles, backslidden Christians. I grew up in a, in a church environment, in a, a genre where the word backslidden was probably used every week at church. It was always talking about somebody who was backslidden. Uh, as a little boy, I wasn't sure how far they had slid or what's wrong with their backs, but it was backslidden. And, uh, and these were always people, usually didn't come to church enough, but especially people who uh, had professed faith at some point in their life. They had prayed a prayer, they had walked an aisle, they got baptized perhaps, but they have walked away unchanged. Whatever they had, uh, had done, as far as the profession of faith, hadn't, hadn't worked. They had not changed one bit, and they were considered by my church family as backslidden. It also includes those who at one time did seem to walk with Christ. They had a great zeal for the Lord. They served Him. They perhaps uh, ministered for Him in, a, in an intense way. Some have even gone into full-time Christian ministry. But they have bought, walked away from the faith. They're calling that deconstruction now in, a, in the, the, term, the terminology among the young people concerning those who have abandoned the faith. They have deconstructed. They have walked away. They want nothing now to do with the Lord. I've known a few people like that. Matter of fact, I've known too many people like that. Uh, I had a pastor friend here years ago, probably over 45 years ago, who was a local pastor here in the community, not in Springfield, but nearby. He's a friend of mine. We were probably about the same age. We enjoyed good fellowship together. He was serving his church faithfully. He had his degrees and all that kind of stuff. And then one day he walked away. Uh, He left his church. He divorced his wife. He, uh, he rejected Jesus Christ totally. Uh, he ended up living on the streets as a homeless person. I ran into him a few years later, maybe two or three years later, at some, some place, and his teeth were mostly black and knocked out. Uh, his, he looked like the homeless person that he was. He was an alcoholic. He had no desire whatsoever for God and no claim to be a Christian. And yet at one time, he had preached, not only believed, but preached the glories of Jesus Christ. Now, when you run into somebody like that, you have to say, what in the world has happened? Are they a Christian? Are they a backslidden person? What are they? And that is what I think is being addressed here. Some believe then that the passage is talking to Christians who are backslidden or carnal. Uh, they, and, this, uh, and, and this seems to hold some weight. 
they're, they're living out then the temporary consequences of their choices. They are saved, but they have turned away from God in their life, and they're living out the temporary consequences, such as my friend is, had lived out, and as far as I know, still is if he's still alive. But Zane Hodges, a theologian at Dallas Theological Seminary, was a champion of this view. Now, these are Christians who are simply paying the price for walking away from God. And he says this concerning this passage of Scripture. He says they are, they are a warning of the danger of a Christian moving from a position of true faith and life to the extent of becoming disqualified for further service and for inheriting millennial glory. So his view was these are Christians who have now... Uh, dis- disqualified themselves to serve God, and they're not, and they're going to lose reward eternally as a result. Well, that's probably true, but we have got a problem here, uh, that, and that is that all these warning passages, all five of them, are in the context not of service and not of reward, but in the context of salvation. <clears throat> Look at our passage right here, verse three. Doesn't talk about service or reward. It says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Look at one of the other passages, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Chapter 3, verse 12, at the end of another warning passage, or involved with one of them, he says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Kind of a frightening passage of Scripture, isn't it? The context on all these warning passages is not service or reward, it's salvation. These people, something, they're falling short of something to do with salvation. And he points that out. So if they're not believers and they're not unbelievers, what do we got left? Well, what is the category? And this is where I light. This is where I believe the, path, the whole book of Hebrews is, is about and who he's writing to. He is writing to, to Christians. He's writing to churches, perhaps more than one church, largely Jewish people. Why it's, that's why we got the name, the book of Hebrews. They're Jewish Christians uh, perhaps in more than one place, and uh, there, and this church, this church, or these churches, are composed of true Christians. Some of them who are doing very well with the Lord, some who are not doing as well, and also unbelievers. They're professing Christians, but they don't truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're professing Christians, they're not truly saved, and therefore they're compromising their faith. And they're going back to Judaism because they don't see the point and the value of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So as the writer writes, here's what I believe the book of Hebrews is about and who it's written to. As the writer writes his book, he is looking at audiences. Now he is not in those churches or he wouldn't be writing. But he's probably been to those churches. And he's writing back to them. And he's writing back and he is writing to them in the exact same way that I preach Sunday after Sunday to you. As I preach the word of God to this congregation of several hundred people here this morning, and probably a couple of hundred out there somewhere, 
who is listening by live stream at least over the next week. As I do so, I am preaching to Christians. I am opening up the Word of God, which is God's letter to His people. And I am preaching the Word of God to Christians, people that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They might be in various stages of the Christian life, but they know Christ. And I'm preaching to those people. But I'm always conscious of the fact that in this congregation today, there are some of you that do not know Christ. You're not saved. And so as I preach the word of God, I'm preaching to Christians, but you're also included in that because I don't know your heart. I don't know your walk with Christ. And here is the the issue that is even more disturbing, which I think he touches on throughout these passages, is that many, many professing believers think they are saved, and sadly they are not. And that's the tragedy. To believe you are saved because you prayed a prayer or baptized or walked an aisle or or whatever whatever reason you think you're a Christian. But you are not because you are not truly trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin with the result that the Holy Spirit lives in your life and you're beginning to bear fruit for Him because He is making a change and transformation within you. How many thousands, hundreds, millions of people profess Christ like that but do not know Christ? And so as I preach the word week after week, as any pastor up here will do, we're preaching mostly to Christians, but we also know that some are not saved. And as the writer of Hebrews writes this book, he is writing to believers who know Christ. But he also knows that within his audience are some who probably do not know Christ because he looks at them and says, and and it's almost like he's frustrated out of his mind, as as anybody would be. What is wrong with you people? I I look at you. I I see what what you're doing. and And you profess Christ, but there's nothing there. It's like an emptiness. Something is wrong, and I don't know what it is. Either you don't know Christ, or you're far from Him. And He doesn't know which that is, because He's not God. And so He pours out these messages of truth, which is the encompassing of all the book, but He also peppers in there at least five warnings times, where He warns them, do not presume you are a Christian unless you truly know Christ by the, and, his, and have the evidence of that salvation. So, as we think about that, I want to move back for just a moment as we examine our life and look at very quickly, we did this a few weeks ago, but I want to do it one more time as we move into the book, and look very quickly at the five warning statements found in the book. They seem to be in a digression order, like they're getting worse each time. Okay, we start with the easiest one, the one we're looking at today, and that is the, the, the warning about drifting from the word through neglect. Drifting through neglect, verse 1, for, we have, for this reason we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the first warning concerning drifting and neglecting. The second warning concerns doubting the word through a hardness of heart. Chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. But look at 3.8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be 
in any one of you, so he's talking to the brethren, but there could be one among them who has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Doubting the word through the hardness of their hearts. Chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 20. We have a dullness towards the word through sluggishness. Verse 11 of chapter 5 says this, Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Just dull of hearing. Fourth, despising the word through willfulness. Despising the word through willfulness. Chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So if you reject the knowledge of the truth, there's no alternative. There's no plan B. There's no other gospel. You reject the true gospel, you lose it all. And then the final one, chapter 12, verses 14 to 29, disobeying the word by refusing to hear. Look at verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. And sanctification, which, uh, which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him. Now notice here, observation. Three times he says the same thing. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned from them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And there's his final warning, disobeying the word by refusing to listen and by turning away. So with all that backdrop, that's a long introduction today, but that gets us into our text. Go back to chapter 2. And he begins by giving us the first warning statement. He's been writing about the superiority of Jesus Christ, and now he gives us a warning statement. And, and, and then he follows that up with an application and an explanation and an, a, and an extension of what that statement's all about. So we start with the warning statement in verse 1. And he says this, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. There's a warning statement. Now again, as, as good Bible students, we want to look at this first three words here for this reason and ask why he, did he say that? Uh, if, if, one of the best ways to study the Bible is simply to bombard it with questions. Whenever you come into a passage of Scripture and you're not sure what it means, or you're looking for the application or whatever, ask the question, ask questions, bombard it with questions. And my question here is when he says, for this reason, what reason is he talking about? And to find out, we have to back up to what he's been saying in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's been talking about all about angels and the superiority of Christ, right? So as we think about that, and I've got to decide what in the world is he saying, what, for this reason you must pay more closer attention, for what reason? Well, in chapter 1, we have a number of things. He left off in verse 14 of chapter 1, talking about the ministry of angels, Angels minister to the elect, to us who know Christ now and those who will know Christ in the future. They minister to us, but how do they minister to us? Well, throughout chapter 1, he's been talking about the ministry of angels to us, but, in, but he's doing that through the, through, by showing that the angels 
were instrumental in bringing us the law of God in the Old Testament. They brought that to us, he says, and they brought a great message. But he's also saying in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is superior over any angel. Angels are magnificent and angels are wonderful, but angels are inferior to Jesus Christ. That's his main message of chapter 1. But also, the message the angels brought is inferior to the message that Jesus brings us. Chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken us to his Son. The angels were involved to some extent. Do I have my PowerPoint? Okay. The angels were involved to some extent in bringing us the law. It says in verses 1 and 2, he spoke to the fathers, to the prophets, many portions in the many ways. But we find in the New Testament that he also spoke to us through the angels. The angels brought this message. So here's what it says in the book of Acts. Stephen is speaking here. It says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. He's talking about Moses. And who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. In Galatians 3.19, why the law then? It was added because of transgression. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the Lord used angels to bring that law to the people in the Old Testament. So what we have then in the passages is that the Lord himself gave us his law, and he, but he gave it through the mediation of angels who brought it to Moses, who brought it to Israel, and it's now in our Old Testament scriptures. So when we put all that together, we see that the angels had a great message, but Jesus brought a better message than what the angels had. And so he's backing up to chapter 1. Jesus is superior to anything, including angels, and Jesus' message is superior to anything in the Old Testament, anything prior to himself. He's brought the great Savior and the great message. Now, having said all that, he says this, for this reason, it is time to pay closer attention. He doesn't just say that. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Having laid down that foundation, we are now called on to pay much closer attention to the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the message that Christ has for us. Pay much closer attention. Do you ever teach something or try to teach something and you know nobody's listening I'm not, I'm not talking about this morning you know but uh, I remember a few years ago I was asked to teach a couple of classes at a, at a seminary and I taught this, these classes this, and uh, there were about 12 students in there these were a little bit older guys because they were uh, in seminary and they were planning to go into ministry I was astounded that almost nobody there seemed to be listening to me they were doing homework they were looking at their cell phones uh, they were not paying hardly any attention at all. And I, I remember that because that's kind of unusual for, for me to, to see that. You don't do that. There's a few of you I could point out. But, you know, most of you, most of you don't do that. But, but here was a whole class of pastors coming up. 
and missionaries going out to serve the Lord, they weren't paying a bit of attention to what I had to say. Now, I don't know how to process that, but it stuck in my mind. Something seriously is wrong here. They're not listening. You ever try to talk to your children and they don't want to hear? Anybody here ever have that experience at all? You know, no, you never have. You don't have children, do you? <laughs> okay. Uh, we've all had that. They're stonewalling us. They're, they're, if they have to, they're listening. But boy, they're, they're not giving you much face time, are they? <laughs> thank you. They're, they're not listening. They're not paying attention. And, and you know it. Are, are you talking to somebody and they're, or they're on their cell phone while you're talking to them? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm going to confess to you, I have an evil heart. In my mind, I've never done this. But in my mind, I've jumped up out of chairs numerous times, grabbed that cell phone, and threw it across the parking lot. <laughs> I'm just telling you, if you want to save your cell phones, and you're talking to me, put them up. Because I might one day act on my evilness. Yeah, so anyhow, I, I shouldn't have confessed that. You'll use it against me somewhere along the line. Nevertheless, when, when you're giving a message, no matter how good the message, if nobody's listening, it doesn't do much good, does it? And so he's calling on these people to pay much closer attention. The, the term is a nautical term. These people might have lived by the ocean or the sea. Because he uses at least two uh, nautical terms in these verses. This is a term that speaks of being anchored uh, in something so that you don't drift away. Like a ship being anchored, tied up, so it doesn't drift away. And he's saying to them, look, you need to be tied up. You need to be anchored in Jesus Christ. You need to pay much closer attention. In the early days of these people receiving the gospel, as we find later on in the book, they were enthusiastic, so enthusiastic for Christ, they were willing to be persecuted, they were willing to suffer, they were willing to lose their stuff for the cause of Christ, and they did so joyfully. Remember that? We looked at that, I think, last week. But not now, at least not a lot of them. They were instead, they were not paying much attention, they were not anchored, and so they were drifting. They were drifting. The result of that, they, they had become bored, apparently, with the things of God. I think one of the most disconcerting features of human nature to me is how easily we become bored. How easily we take for granted the great things that we have. Uh, we, we, uh, we just are that type of people. Uh, I often hear people say, I want to move to such and such place so I have a great view. When you get that great view, three months later you'll forget about the great view. You'll grow, you'll grow used to it almost certainly. We're easily bored. And folks were easily bored with the most important and the greatest of stuff, including being bored with Jesus Christ. What a pity. What a sadness. And yet he's writing to these people knowing that that is the propensity of these people. They haven't anchored themselves in Christ, and they have drifted from him as a result, and they are not taking these things as beautiful, as, as wonderful as they once were. And he goes on to say this as well, that we do not drift away from it. So once we lose the, uh, the attention of God's word, once we stop paying attention to what he has for us, then we automatically start to drift. Uh, a couple of years, three years ago, I was out getting some firewood for my fireplace, and it was wintertime, of course, and uh, my hands were apparently had shrunk up a little bit from the cold weather, and my ring fell off, slipped off, fell in the, somewhere in that wood. 
I didn't notice it for a day or so. Then when I went to look for it, I couldn't find it. If that had fallen off, I could have found it easily, but I couldn't find it. A year later, after we burned all the wood up, Marsha was out doing something and she found it. And so, you know, some of the people, it's kind of amazing on the Wonderful Day in the Lord broadcast, how many people ask me, where's your ring? I'm in preaching here, I'm, and you're just looking at my ring? Come on now. Uh, it has slipped off. That's what the word here means. It's like it's slipped away. And it's some, well, the danger is it slips off and we don't notice it. And so the danger here is drifting, is slipping ever so slowly away from Christ and the things of Christ and not noticing it until we're all the way down the pike. That's what he's warning about with these people at this time. The danger of spiritual drift lies in the fact that it's so subtle when we do that. So he's warning them, he's giving them application to both true believers and unbelievers. If, if my idea of who's uh, doing this is true, who he's writing to is true. For the believer, let's go with the believer for a moment. He is saying that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. How do you keep from drifting in the Christian life? Simple antidote. Simple as could be. Not always hard to apply, easy to apply, but simple statement. You don't have to be a Bible scholar here. Look at what it says. Pay much closer attention. That's not hard stuff to think about. It's not always easy, perhaps, to apply. So he's thinking about Christians who could drift away. And he's warning them that the antidote to that is paying closer attention to Christ and his word so that you do not drift. This is a ser very serious thing. One Christian author wrote these words in, 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 in relationship to a passage like this. This is a Christian, and the name of the little poem he wrote was, Let Me Get Home Before the Dark. He says, I fear the dark scepter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish but not well, that I should strain your honor and shame your name and grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. That's a cry of many a Christian, maybe should be of all of us. There's a hymn that we still sing today that's going on 300 years old. It's a hymn that stood up for good reasons. It's called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We talked about this a few weeks ago on another verse. of the, It was written by a young man named Robert Robinson in 1751. He was 22 years old, and he wrote this marvelous hymn. But one of the verses that we sing, every time we sing this song, and one of the verses that pulls at the heart of every true child of God, I think, is this one. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander, to leave the God I love. Is that the testimony of God's people? It can be. Matter of fact, I think it often is. I think what this verse reached to us because we all know what that could be like. He wrote that at 22 years old. If you're 22 years old and you're wondering about, about pulling away from God to leave the God you love, you feel it in your heart how easy that would be to do. At 22, what are you going to do when you're 42? 
and you're 42 and you've been saved since you were a kid and you've been in the church for 20, 30 years and, you've, and you know it all. <laughs> you've heard every sermon. You've read through every book. You've gone to class after class and you got it down and you're bored with it all. And you tend to drift because you're not paying much attention any longer. You used to. You used to take notes. You used to write things down. You used to mark up your Bibles. You used to be so enthusiastic. But, you know, you're getting a little older. You're middle-aged now. Sorry, guys, if you're 42. You're middle-aged now. You're not a kid any longer. What happens when you're 62? And you're getting closer to the end. And you've been serving the Lord all, the, all these years. And you're getting closer to uh, retirement days and, and settling back. And, and the pastor says, could you do such and such here at the church for us? And I've heard this more than once, sadly. No, I've served my time let the young people do it. Again, my evil heart wants to strangle you. <laughs> well, I'm getting, I'm getting meaner. It's like, I need a drink of water. What do you mean you served your time? Wouldn't that be something if that's what Jesus Christ thought? Wouldn't that have been something if that's what the Apostle Paul thought? Served your time. I'll serve your time. Uh, you okay, I, I got to back off here. <laughs> I, I, another, another drink here. What about when you're 82 and your body is failing and you're not sure about the future? You're not sure what's coming? How do people that are 22, 42, 62, 82, and all the things in between, how do they walk with the Lord for year after year after year after year after year by paying much closer attention to Jesus Christ and His Word? You are never beyond that, folks. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you know. I don't care how long you've served Christ. I don't care if you're a brand new believer. You're never beyond the simple statement of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. That passage alone could be the life savior of your spiritual life. If you live it, believe it, and practice it. Well, what about the unbeliever? What if he's talking to unbelievers here? Our unbelievers are reading this and thinking about themselves. It's even more important. You see, most people don't slowly, uh, let's put it this way, most people don't simply walk away from God. They, most unbelievers don't say, I don't want God. They, they give a lip service. But the point of this passage is that most people, without noticing it, just drift through life without any thought about Jesus Christ and what he should mean to them. They slowly, without noticing it, drift. They ignore the gospel. They think everything is fine with them, not realizing they're headed for destruction. That's the vast majority of humanity. And sadly, there's often people in the church who think the same way. In one of the most wonderful books you're ever wanting to read, if you want a thriller that's true, read the book Endurance, which tells the story of Ernest Shackleton and his men in 1912 that went to Antarctica trying to find the South Pole. They got trapped there. Their, their ship was destroyed. They were trapped there for a long time. And this is the most wonderful book you ever want to read. But he tells on one occasion where they were trying to get somewhere, so they walked all day, maybe two days, as hard as they could in a certain direction to get there. 
when they took the readings with their instruments later on, they found out they were further away than when they started. What had happened? They were on one of those ice streams that was floating the other direction faster than they were walking. And they did not know it. That's the condition of unsaved people. They're going the wrong direction. They do not know it. And so any unbeliever, anyone who professes Christ but is not truly saved needs to look carefully at this passage of Scripture and recognize the need to pay much closer attention to your life, to Christ, to the Scriptures. Now the explanation, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, to support his point, he's going to go from an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, how shall we escape? Well, I'll go to verse 2, I mean. For if the words spoken through angels prove unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the argument from the lesser to the greater, if you like frozen pizza, you're going to like Pizza Hut. Or Papa John's. No, there's no amens on that. Okay. So, a, greater, a lesser to the greater. Here's the lesser to the greater. If the message from angels proved unalterable and wonderful, how much greater will the message of Jesus Christ be? You must pay close attention to that. So he begins by giving us the Old Testament law that was spoken through angels. And now he wants to prove his message. The salvation that we have here always, in all times, has always been the same. It's always based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's always uh, by, received by faith alone. That has never changed. But when Jesus came, he came with, with a complete, more unique message of Scripture. The Old Testament symbolized the things of Christ, the cross of Christ. I, I, Isaiah 53 was quite clear. But when Jesus came, he brought something else. Let me take a couple passages with you. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's bringing a gospel to them, calling them to repentance. In John 1, 17, I think it's uh, perhaps the best explanation of the difference. He said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses. That's the Old Testament revelation delivered by angels. But the, but the message of grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's his message to us. The law handed down to God through angels, to Moses, to Israel. But Christ speaks to us directly. And that is why it says in Romans 3.31, do not... Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So here, let's put it together. The Old Testament revelation of the law told us how we were to live. And it was, it was a message of, that told us how to live, gave us no power to live. And therefore, it is a message of condemnation. It's a message in which it tells us how bad we are how inadequate we are, how wrong we are, how lost we are, how condemned we are, but provides no true salvation. But the law points to Christ, who brought grace and truth. He brought the message, and he died to accomplish that message for us. The law condemns, Jesus Christ saves. That's the difference. 
And if the Old Testament message of law was important enough to listen to and pay attention to, then the message of Jesus Christ is much more than that. That's, that's the argument that he's making at this point. To show you, a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I, want, I just want justice. I, you know, I want, I want what to be right. I want things to be right, and I want things to be fair, and I want things to be just. Well, if you ever wanted a system of justice, the Old Testament law gave it to you. It was absolutely just. Here is the law. Here's what happens if you fail. And here's, your, here's the consequences. And there was no mercy most of the time in that process. Here's a passage if you want the law. Numbers is one example. Numbers chapter 15, verse 30 to 36. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a na native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off but his guilt will be on him. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood. This shows you how fair the law is. They found wood gathering wood on the Sabbath, which is against the law. Those who found him gathered, gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because he had not been, de it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall come and stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You want fairness? You want justice? The Lord made it very clear. You gather wood on the Sabbath, you die. He gathered wood on the Sabbath, he died. God kept his word. No mercy there. Justice. That's the Old Testament law. Then we come back to Hebrews chapter 2. And he says, if we paid attention to the Old Testament law that was brought to us through angels, and everybody received a, dis, a just penalty when they disobeyed, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So much superior is the message of Christ. How could we do anything less than pay much closer attention to it? To sell our hearts out to it. To live for the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and our soul and our being. Because he is not only just, he is merciful. And he is our savior. That's the great salvation message he gives us here. Notice again, he carefully chooses his words here. He says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He doesn't even use the word reject. He uses the word neglect. But neglect becomes reject if you continue in that. You neglect the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, it ultimately becomes a rejection in your life. How can, how, and then how can we escape if we neglect Martin Luther liked to use very grotesque illustrations, <laughs> very earthy illustrations, ones that people understood at his time. His best known illustration, I suppose, had to do with a dunghill. I think you know what that is. 
Back in the day, in his day, everybody, almost everybody had farms in, in Germany. But they, they didn't have modern fertilizers, but they had a lot of dung and for the cows and other animals. And so every farm had a dung hill. They would gather all the manure and so forth, and they put it in a big pile somewhere in the, in the yard. And as they needed it, they took it and spread it throughout the farm. But every farm had that. And so every farm stunk. Every farm had this nasty, pit, nasty pile of, of manure setting somewhere near the house, probably. It was ugly. It was grotesque. It was stinky. It was awful. Martin Luther, in one of his sermons, talking about justification, pointed to a dunghill, I guess, and said, look, that's how we are before Christ. We, 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 we're sinful. We're, we're, God rejects us. We're ugly, we're offensive, we're unacceptable to God. But he says, when the first snow falls in the winter, and it covers all the land, including the dunghill, before anybody steps out and messes up the snow, for a little while that snow is covered up, even the dunghill. The smell's gone, the offensiveness is gone, the ugliness is gone, and everything is pure white snow. And he says, that is justification. That is what Christ has done. He's taken people who he says are like dunghills and he's covered it with his blood and made us whiter than snow. How can we not absolutely adore so great a salvation? Father, we thank you now that you have done so much for us. Thank you for your great salvation found only in Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you praise today. We ask, Lord, that every one of us looks deep into our own hearts. We examine where we are. Are we walking with you as we should? Are we, are we growing in you? Are we paying close attention to you and your word? And I especially thank, Lord, of those who are here today that are not truly saved. They may have played a game or they may have faked themselves out. But may they look deep in their hearts. May your spirit expose their own sinfulness to them and their own inability, and may you draw them even this moment to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great and Savior and Lord. And I pray in his name. Amen.